Welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast for women who want to discover, awaken, and create their voice through the art of public speaking. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. Welcome, friends, to episode 130. This is a big episode. We cover a lot. (laughs) My guest today is Jamie Lieberman, and she's an attorney, podcaster, and entrepreneur who's dedicated to making legal accessible and sharing the message that working with a lawyer doesn't have to be scary. I don't know about you, but I definitely was scared when I started working with lawyers. As the owner and founder of Hashtag Legal, Jamie draws on her experience working with influencer marketing professionals, creatives, and business owners to help her clients grow and protect their businesses. She leads an all-female virtual team focused on providing clients with advice on a wide range of subjects, such as intellectual property, contracts, privacy, FTC and general business law, as well as negotiation strategies. Jamie is the co-host for the Fearless Business Podcast and has spoken at influential industry conferences such as Alt Summit, Podcast Movement, and FinCon. Jamie and I get into a lot in this episode. We kind of talk about her experience as a speaker and what she's learned to help her just kind of be a better speaker on stage. And we talked about how content creators can protect their intellectual property. If you are a speaker, you're a content creator. Um, We talk about different clauses that speaking contracts need to have. We talk about tips around negotiating a speaking engagement. We kind of go all over the map, but I think you'll find this episode to be very valuable and very helpful. And hopefully you can take a couple tips with you that will help you to be more successful as you build your speaking business. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jamie Lieberman. Jamie Lieberman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk with you today. This this subject, uh, the legal subject, is one that sends a lot of people running or just kind of ignoring altogether because it is such a touchy subject and can create some fear and wonder around how to protect ourselves. What can we do if something does happen? And I'm hoping that today's conversation can shed some light on how we can protect our intellectual property and how we can just feel safer putting our work out into the world. But before we get into that, I would love it if you could tell me how you got into this line of work. So I promise you, we're not going to make it scary. (laughs) (laughs) I like, that's a good place to start. We're going to start there. So everything we stand for at my law firm is accessibility of legal. So we're going to keep it that way. Um, I've been a lawyer for about 15 years. And the first half of my career was a very traditional law practice, the kind that you see on television and that the kind you read about that makes everybody really unhappy. (laughs) So... I did that and I don't regret it. Um, It gave me the foundation to be the attorney I am. Um, But I knew pretty quickly that being a complex commercial litigator in New York City was not what I wanted to do. Um, And so about eight years ago, I had my first son and I went back to work. I was working for the federal government at the time. And I realized that there just had to be a better way, um, that I could both be a lawyer and um, have 
my personality come through <laughs> because I felt like a lot of who I was and what I stood for was a little bit squished by working for other people because I had to kind of fall in line with what their vision was. Uh So when I had my first son, I didn't really know what that looked like yet. I just left the practice, traditional practice, and I freelanced like a crazy person to keep money coming in, to keep my legal brain going, but to try to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, And at that time, I was also a blogger. I blogged about non-legal stuff, um, just about living in New York um, and all the kind of crazy things that you can get into, particularly before you have kids. (laughs) And um, I realized pretty quickly that at that time, the blogging community was actually starting to make money. And so I um, started to speak about legal issues facing bloggers because I started working for a blogging, a company that ran conferences for bloggers. So um, that's really how I got into this work. And so Hashtag Legal, my law firm, came from a whole bunch of bloggers coming up to me saying, we can't find a lawyer. We are starting to grow these businesses and we'd love your help. And then that expanded out into working with creatives more so than just bloggers, but, you know, design professionals and web developers and app developers, which then turned into service professionals like designers and a whole host of entrepreneurs. And so now we work with lots of different specialties, but that all came from my experience actually from my first speaking gig of all things. I love that. And I think it's such an emerging market of these solopreneurs and freelancers who are putting their work out into the world and want to be able to protect themselves and may not have a, you know, in-house corporate lawyer or someone just that they can reach out to, you know, at the drop of a hat. So to be able to reach out to you and have your team available definitely helps to ease that concern and have someone in their corner, right? That's exactly what we do. We sort of pride ourselves as being a partner to our clients and you can work with us as little or as much as you need to. And so clients sort of, some clients are very regular and we hear from them all the time, but we have some clients who come in, do a couple projects and I might not hear from them for six months to a year. And when they pop back up in my inbox, it's like a really cool feeling because it usually means hopefully something really cool is happening. Yeah. Or something terrible. (laughs) Yeah. We're trying not to think about those things. (laughs) (laughs) So in this interview, I want to kind of flip flop back and forth between your legal advice and also your speaking experience. And so many of our listeners are either building a speaking business or have an interest in building their public speaking skills. And I know you also speak. And I think there's, I was told that there's an interesting story about how you got your first speaking gig. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So it was so accidental, which I laugh a lot. I was working for this company that ran conferences for bloggers. And we um, basically, many years ago, nobody was really much talking about the business of blogging and they started to. And so I was helping them with some legal work, but some non-legal work doing operational things. And it was really fun and I was really excited and I was actually very close to thinking I was not going to practice law anymore and I was going to really pursue some other options. And the owner of that company who knew I was a lawyer because I was the company's lawyer as well said, hey, I think, I think bloggers really need to learn about some of these legal issues they're not paying attention to like intellectual property or starting companies or what does a sponsored contact contract look like? She goes, do you think you could create a workshop for legal issues for bloggers. And I was like, yeah, I think I could do that. (laughs) And so we did. And hilariously, no one came because... (laughs) 
<laughs> failure is totally okay. I tell that to people all the time because bloggers weren't thinking about it. Yeah. And then as they got to know me, um, and you know, there were a couple people there, I joke, but it was a small, a very small number of actual attendees word started to spread. They were like, oh guys, you need to hear this. And so I started running this workshop more frequently and loads of people started to show up. Um, And so that's really where I started as a speaker. That's awesome. I'm so glad you didn't give up. It can be really hard to keep going when you're, you have an empty room and you've worked really hard to put together your first presentation. So thanks for continuing. (laughs) You got to keep going, especially if you know what you're providing. Sometimes you're a bit of a revolutionary and people don't even know that they need you yet. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's really good to just keep getting the word out because eventually they will figure that out. And I know that you've continued to speak and you've spoken to audiences larger than, you know, 500 people. What kind of strategies have you used as you've built your speaking business? practice. (laughs) And I don't, I actually am a little bit non-traditional in the speaking world in that I don't practice my full speeches ahead of time, which most conventional wisdom is practice, practice, practice. Um, I have just gotten up a lot in front of people, whether it's formal or informal. I'll talk to a group of 15, I'll talk to a group of a thousand. And I think just having the comfort in standing up and also in knowing my subject is the things that have made me most comfortable. Doing podcasts, creating a webinar, hopping on video, little things that get you used to just being in front of others and utilizing your expertise in a way that you have to get it out quickly, succinctly, but make it clear is how I found were the types of strategies that I needed to become a better speaker. Yeah. And I think it's great that you've discovered your own style and what works for you. I think a lot of speakers think they need to be able to memorize their whole entire talk in order to say yes to a speaking gig, but that's not always the case. And you're also pointing to sort of alternative versions of public speaking that we may not always think of as public speaking, like podcasting and webinars and interviews, because it's the same skill set. It just looks a little different. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because it does totally require the same preparation and the same skills. Absolutely. It, um, just getting a general comfort in standing up and speaking your message. That could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, and there are extra things that go into a live speaking gig, like your body and where you're moving and how you're, you know, what your little nervous habits are. I tend to shift back and forth. I can watch video of myself. I also do that. I at least watch, I don't watch my full speech because I can't, (laughs) but I will watch clips of myself to see where my fidgets are. I try to find what my crutch words are, things like that. As you become more polished, those are the types of things that I I now pay attention to versus, you know, knowing what my speech is going to be about. I've never memorized a speech actually. I never have either. And I don't always recommend that people do that. I get more nervous if I try to memorize it because then I feel like I have to stick to the script instead of just being in the moment. And it's really hard to do that. So you just brought up another scary topic, which is watching video of yourself speaking. (laughs) (laughs) So you're doing all the scary stuff, but it is so helpful if you can see, oh, wow, I'm swaying back and forth like a palm tree on stage. That must be distracting (laughs) to the audience. So it's really great that you're taking that time to just you know, be kind of constructive with yourself and trying to improve. But definitely, I think it's um, it's a lot of learning really quickly when you can observe yourself the way the audience does. So let's um, 
I guess we're going to shift all over the place in this conversation, but I'm, I'm interested in how you've built confidence in yourself and built a platform for yourself in a male dominated workspace. So many of our listeners are working in male dominated industries and trying to make a name for themselves, trying to stand out. What, what kinds of strategies or what have you done in order to build up your career? I'm myself. So I think that really, it's, it sounds so simple, right? I've come to this place where I am who I am and I'm pretty comfortable with that. And so once I found out who I was and what my message was um, and felt really confident and comfortable in that message, I then became okay with that wasn't going to be for everybody. And so once you're okay with someone saying like, if people, if anybody in your audience sees a picture of me or meets me, I'm not a sort of quote unquote typical looking lawyer. And that's great because my creative clients love it. <laughs> a bank on Wall Street probably wouldn't hire me to be their lawyer and that's okay. Don't really care for them as a client. They're not my ideal client. And so once I can make those sort of distinctions, it makes it so much easier to just be yourself and to serve those people who resonate most with me. Um, and in a male-dominated space, it can be really challenging. I mean, I think one of the, the things I have that makes me very lucky is I was a litigator for eight years leading into what I'm doing now. And so I've sat in rooms of all men, maybe 20 years older than me, where I was the only woman. I was much younger. And frankly, I was things that were said to me were shocking. Um, and so one, I learned to defend myself. And two, I learned to have a really thick skin. I don't roll over, but I also don't take it. And sometimes I don't even engage. It can be as small as I don't appreciate you know, your language or your tone. And when you're ready to have a better conversation with me, I'm happy to have one. Um, but in doing those very small things, it really did help me build up my confidence. But I think at the end of the day, it really just came down to a lot of experience. And for me, really figuring out who I was and what I offer and why that would be appealing to the person that is my most ideal client. Mm -hmm. I love your answer of being yourself. And I've interviewed so many people on this podcast who have given that answer for how they became successful speakers, how they became successful coaches, authors. It all came down to that one important piece, which is who am I and who do I really want to serve? And I think... I'm really fascinated by that answer because I think everyone arrives at it in a different way. And I'm wondering if you have any stories or moments that helped you to see, oh, this is what I'm meant to do, or this is not who I want to work with, or this is me, this is not me. Because I think it's it's a really, it's important to be ourselves, but the process of becoming ourselves and recognizing who we are and what we want isn't always simple. <laughs> I so agree with that. Mine came from a series of working for people who I did not want to emulate as bosses. <laughs> um, and so it, I've worked for both men and women. Um, I had a particularly challenging boss who I channel very frequently when I, I have employees in my law firm. And I channel that boss very frequently when I think about what I don't want to do. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and how I want to be treated. I had a couple of instances. Um, I worked in a very male-dominated law firm in New York, um, and most of the people that I worked with and for were men. And I had a boss who was a screamer, 
and no one would stand up. And I, when I say screamer, I mean, he would literally be two inches from your face screaming in your face. So you could smell his breath. And he was a very huge partner and it was just accepted. It's not okay. Um, and I was the first, I had a moment and I think a lot of these were just moments of like, I cannot do this anymore and I do not care what happens. And I had a moment where he was screaming in my face and I just stood up from my desk. I got as close to him as I possibly could. And I said, get out of my office until you lower your voice. Wow. And it was just this moment and a female partner walked by and saw it happen who didn't step in, but she was shocked. She came running and she was like, are you okay? And I looked at her, I'm like, you didn't do anything. Um, and so I sort of had that moment where I thought to myself, like, I'm never going to let someone talk to me like this again. That doesn't feel good. And I'm much too valuable for that. Um, and so that really taught me the value of standing up for yourself because I will tell you, I was not fired. He apologized to me and he never screamed at me again. Um, and so there is value in standing up for yourself, even in the scariest of all scary times. And I was, I needed my job. It wasn't like, I don't, I put myself through law school. I, all of those things. So it wasn't like I had any fallback. <laughs> yeah. I just was done. Um, and I just had a moment where I'm like, I'm not, I'm just, that's just not okay. Um, and the other moment was a boss I had, um, who was really, overly demanding in cases where sh this person didn't need to be. Um, and so I found myself feeling incredibly frustrated at a lack of autonomy. And so when I was able to really push into like what was really bothering me about our relationship, it made me realize I am a person who likes to have, to make my own decisions and to feel like I have control over who I'm working with and how I'm doing that work, which is what led me to know that I'd be probably a good candidate to own my own business. I love those two stories. I'd like that the the first one where you were speaking up for yourself gave you that confidence and ability to say, okay, I know that how I want to be treated and this isn't it. And now I have a baseline for moving forward. I think that's cool. So let's let's jump into the the legal stuff. I think there's a lot here that listeners would be interested in learning more about. So content creators, people like speakers, online course creators, authors, people who are bloggers who are listening to this program, how can they protect their intellectual property? And can you also give some examples of intellectual property? Like what, what, what falls into that category? Yeah, that's a great question. Content creators are a very large part of our practice. So I really love talking about this subject because um, I think there's lots of really good tips uh, that people can get. So there's three types of intellectual property. There's trademarks, there's copyright, and there's patents. Patents are their own little world that I don't practice in. So I'm not going to mention patents at all other than to say, if you ha think you may need to file for a patent, talk to a really great lawyer because they're really complicated. Okay. Um, so content creators typically are most concerned with copyright and trademark. And those are two different topics that often get confused. So a trademark is a source indicator. And that just means that it is a name that indicates where goods and services come from. So if you go to the store and you see the Nike swoosh, you know you're getting Nike shoes because that swoosh indicates Nike to you. So that is really what a trademark is. So it's a name, a logo, it could be a color, it could be a smell. There's loads of different things that it could be 
typically in our practice, we see words or logos. Those are the most common and they are going to be associated with certain goods or services. Wait, so how, if, how, do, how do you trademark a smell? Oh, I know. Isn't that funny? You can. <laughs> can you give me an example of one that's been done? Um, oh my gosh. Um, yes. Yeah, somebody, oh, I'm trying to remember there, there's a famous one that has blanked on my brain. All I'm thinking about is the color Tiffany blue is a, a, a color that's trademark protected. I need to find the smell one, but there is a trademark protected smell. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. Like the McDonald's French fries? Is that it should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the shape of um, soda bottles. Um, I think the Coke bottle is uh, trademark protected. I think it's the Coke bottle, but there's lots of, you know, the pink and insulation, another color um, for like the Pink Panther. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of crazy things that can be trademark protected. I got to go look up the smell. I'll, I'll send you a message. <laughs> so typically though, we're looking at words or logos. That's what most people tend to do. Um, and so you need whatever goods or services are associated with your name, you can seek trademark registration. So long as there are two issues that are not two things that are not an issue. One, there's nobody else out there that's using the name, uh, same or similar name in connection with same or similar goods or services. So that's the likelihood of confusion that people think of. And also um, trademarks that are descriptive, meaning they describe what it is that the person is creating or doing or the goods or services are also typically not eligible for trademark protection. So course creators often want to trademark, um, seek trademark application uh, for the name of their course. Um, and so if I'm doing a course about, say, SEO, um, if I called it um, SEO strategy, that might be challenging. But if I had like a cool sort of more um, less generic name, then I might be able to protect it because the more generic a word is that describes what it is that you're doing, the less likely is you're going to get protection for that. So names, uh, a lot of speakers will have um, either a, the name of a signature talk or series of talks, courses, um, book titles that stand alone are not eligible, but if you have a series of books, think like Nancy Drew, um, those, those could be eligible for trademark protection. So you'd want to consider um, seeking trademark registration if you want to be able to stop somebody from using the same or similar name in connection with your, the same or similar goods or services. Um, copyright is a little bit different. Copyright is when you have created an original work. And when I say original, it doesn't mean it has to be the next Mona Lisa. It just means you created it. So even if I take a picture, I'm looking out my window, I see a stop sign. If I take a picture of a stop sign and you take a picture of the stop sign, we each have a copyright in our own image of that stop sign, even if we're coming at it from the same angle. And so um, original is sort of a low threshold and it has to be what's called fixed in a tangible medium. And that is legalese for you took the picture, you wrote the blog post, all of those things. And so the interesting thing about copyright and what frequently happens with speakers is they have an awesome idea for a talk, but maybe haven't written the talk and they tell someone about that idea. And the important thing to remember with protecting your content is ideas are not eligible for copyright protection. So ideas are sort of in the universe for the taking. 
you can't latch onto them. What is protected is how you articulate that idea and how it, it that idea it becomes, quote, fixed in its tangible medium. So your version and your interpretation of that idea. Can you give an example of what that looks like? Sure. So it could be um, the when you create a, a when you create a talk, if you write the talk out, that whole talk, if you've created it and you've written it and the way that you've written it, you could copyright protect your talk. The video that's taken of you doing the talk, if someone snaps a picture of you giving the talk, um, all of those can are eligible and frankly, the minute they're created, you do obtain certain rights. They're called common law rights in that. So like if you take a picture and someone then lifts that picture and posts it themselves, you can ask them not to post that picture. If you register um, that picture for copyright rejection, you get a lot more rights and an ability to stop people from using your uh, protected materials. Let's let's talk about speaking contracts. You say there are three clauses that a speaking contract should have and that speakers should be paying way more attention to. I'm really curious what these three clauses are. Sure. So the one thing you want to know is um, how the the venue or whoever's hiring you to to speak, what they're going to do with your talk. You know, are they able to repurpose your talk? Can they turn the video of your talk? Can they put it, can they transcribe it and make it a chapter in a book? Same with podcasts. So it's important to know how your intellectual property is protected when um, you're speaking. You want to know if you're being paid, (laughs) how you're being paid, what you're being paid for, and what your requirements are. So sometimes when you speak, I see speaking agreements where not only are you required to, um, you know, maybe fly somewhere, travel somewhere, will those expenses be paid for? But are you required to have certain social shares? Um, are you required to engage with a certain community? What what materials are you providing to an audience, if any? Like if you do a workshop of some kind and you're handing out materials, you want to make sure those materials are protected as well. Um, So those are both really important. And then you want to look at, and I see this sometimes get snuck in, exclusivity provisions. Some companies that are seeking speakers want you to only give the talk to them. So to make sure that if you do give a signature talk, you're able to give it anywhere um, at any time. And that if you want to give it a week later to another audience, you can do that. Now, what if you have in your contract that you want to be paid 50% upon execution of the agreement and 50% after the um, the gig is done and they sign the contract and then when the when it's time for them to pay, they say, oh, we don't pay until six, week at, six weeks after, you know, or something like that. What kind of recourse can a speaker take in that instance? So you've you've done, I mean, honestly you know, if the terms of the agreement that have been signed say payment upon, you know, completion, then you can do one of two things. You can send them a really strongly worded letter from a lawyer. Um, You can send them into collections if you've tried to collect and you haven't collected. But if they say to you, we're going to cut you a check, it's just going to take you a couple of weeks, they didn't put into a contract. There's not a ton, frankly, you can do until... A certain amount of time because it's not going to be really worth your effort to go fight with them because you're going to end up spending more money to fight with them when the check is probably coming. Um, so confirming 
with someone when they do sign that, yes, you're going to have a check for me is also really helpful. But it's in those situations, it's really hard. There's there's not a ton you can do unless someone truly hasn't paid you. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips around negotiating a speaking engagement? Like what's acceptable to ask for? Oh, reach for the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Don't self-edit. I think so many people, when they reach out, they're trying so hard to think about what does this company want to pay me? What is their budget? What do they want? Instead of sort of setting what your own baseline is. You can't mind read. Um, You can ask a lot of questions. I I give a whole talk about negotiation. Um, It's one of my favorite topics. I used to teach law school students about negotiation. I just think it's such an under-talked about area. Um, And in the way that I teach negotiation is very research heavy. So one, you need to know what your pricing is. You need to know what your baseline is, but you also need to have an understanding of what your client's needs are and who they are and what they want from you and why they're talking to you. Because obviously if you're engaging in these initial negotiations, there's a reason. Um, And so, because you not only are interested in them, but they're also very interested in you. So obtaining information is really important Um, and not saying yes to everything or trying to anticipate what the other party is going to say. If you don't know the answer to a question, just ask it. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you say when the company is the first party to say, what's your budget? Like, <laughs> this tell them you tell them what you're speaking. You know, you should have you should know what your baseline fee is. Um, and if you tell them this is what my fee is, the worst thing that they do is come back and say that's out of our budget. And then you go back and say, okay, great. What's your budget? Let's see what we can do to work together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know it's very hard to lead. <laughs> <laughs> it's also hard to potentially walk away from business, especially if you're new at it or you're trying to establish yourself in a field and you don't want to give them a number that's going to scare them. So I guess it depends on what point you're at in your career as a speaker and how much weight you have to kind of throw into the conversation. I don't think so because um, when you're new in your career, you're willing to make a lot more concessions. So your numbers might, one may be less than you would be, say you'd been speaking or in your career for 10 years. And two, just because you throw out a number and someone comes back and says no, that doesn't mean that's the end of the conversation. There's so many currencies that you can be negotiating. Like I had a friend who somebody, I was so proud of her. She's a client of mine and a friend of mine. And it was a company that she was really, she's a, an experienced speaker. It's a company that she was really interested in working with. And they basically said to her, like, you know, she came out, she's like, here's what you know, my speaking fee is. And she's like, oh man, they said our budget is X, Y, and Z. And they said, we're a little bit off. And she said, well, let's talk a little bit. How about travel? And they're like, oh, we have an unlimited travel budget. She got them to fly her whole family out. (laughs) But that's amazing, right? She asked a a few questions and she didn't shy away from it. And so she was able to get what she needed. It was perfect for her. They had a whole little vacation on top of it and it worked for her. So if she never would have, if she just would have either shut down or just accepted what they said without asking more questions, she never would have gotten what she needed. Yeah. So a good place to start is to ask yourself what's important to me. If it's not just the money, what else could I be asking for? There are so many currencies. What about shares? If you're just starting out and you're talking to an 
an audience that's very interesting to you um, or a community that has a very engaged audience, maybe you get something else. Maybe they do a feature on you or maybe they do some shares for you or something. Like there's lots of different ways that you can get value that's not just dollars. Absolutely. Jamie, this has been so informational and interesting. Where can we find more information about you? So um, my law firm is called Hashtag Legal and our law firm is hashtag-legal.com is our website. Um, You can email me directly. Jamie is J-A-M-I-E at hashtag-legal.com. And we have a lot of fun on Instagram. So you can find us there at hashtag underscore legal. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to share? Any last words? just go for it. (laughs) No more self-editing. No more being worried about what other people are going to think. Just do you. Love it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. That does it for me today. I hope you got some good tips from Jamie. I know I did. I I really enjoy talking with her. Be sure to check out her company, Hashtag Legal. And if you have any ideas for future guests on the podcast, I'm always open to hearing from you. You can email me at Angela at SpeakerSisterhood.com anytime. I know we just wrapped up our four-part series on Secrets of the Sisterhood. If you enjoyed that, that series and you're interested in checking out the book, it is on sale right now. And uh, you can find it at speakersisterhood.com slash secrets. There's information there for ordering and whatever else you might want to know about it. So that does it for me this week, you guys. This podcast has been a production of the Speaker Sisterhood and was recorded at the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. You can learn more about us at speakersisterhood.com. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time. 